Kiko Davis-Snotty. I'm 50 years old. I'm Black. I live in Detroit, Michigan. And I'm David Mayer, and I'm 60 years old. I am a white Jewish American who lives in Berkeley, California. And we are recording our stories and conversation today on Thursday, the 14th of January, 2021. So Kiko, it's so nice to have some time here to talk to each other and learn more about each other and our, our histories that brought us together here in Reparation Generation. I'm looking forward to it. So I wanted to ask you, do you have a specific experience or story that relates to why or, or when you joined Reparation Generation? Well, I've always felt passionate about racial equality ever since I was a little girl and learned about the struggle of the civil rights movement and the impact of positive leaders like Martin Luther King. Um, over the years, I felt advances were being made with regard to racial equality. However, over the past few years, I saw a decline in those advances, almost a reversal until 2020. And it brought us to like a real racial reckoning. I saw a reparation generation as an opportunity to be a part of the solution and process of bridging the gap between repeating a negative history or creating a new, more perfect one, one that's full of possibilities and opportunities. And I simply wanted to be a part of creating a new, more improved history for our nation. <laughs> that's beautiful. So what about you? How did you come to you know, join Reparation Generation? Well, my story with Reparation Generation was began sort of towards the end of 2019 and early in 2020. My father was sick and passed. And um, I had been doing a lot of writing and reading, and especially around racial injustice. And I was working on America's history and my family's history a little bit. And I was confused and I felt uh, a lot of frustration as I felt lied to about history um, and my own family's history. And I was writing a lot about this and I was kind of thinking in my mind about a, a possible book that I would write about racial injustice, but also about economics. And, and then I read an editorial in the New York Times um, that was by David Brooks, who I respect quite a bit. And in that article, he talked about reparations and that, that the time is now. Um, and then I started reading a bunch about reparations. And then clearly in May, after the murder of George Floyd, my writing changed as it reflected a lot of uh, my own anger and frustration. And I was writing a fair amount. And at one point, I, I decided to take a risk and share my writing, which I often don't. Um, but I shared my writing with a, a friend and colleague of mine who's a Black American. And she basically said some very um, heartfelt and impactful things. One, she said, I can't talk about this right now, which made me quite nervous that I really um, had triggered something that was not positive. Um, but later she came back and said that she had never heard a white American own the things that I was owning as my responsibility and visioning a new America where we embrace change and acknowledge truth. She said, you got to do something. She said, David, you got to do something. Wow. And I said, well, if I do something, would you help? 
And she said, absolutely. And then I said, do you have friends who help? And, and she said, absolutely. And th that's what got me hooked on Reparation Generation. And um, as you, looking forward to creating a bridge where Black and white Americans can come together in truth and reconciliation and repair some real damage that's been done because of, of inequality and injustice and denied for over 400 years. So that's what got me going. Well, hopefully, uh, just as you and I have inspired, Reparation Generation will inspire many more others to join our cause and to be the bridge and to be a sense of hope and uh, allow us to come together as a nation and as a country. So I'm thoroughly looking forward to that. Yeah, me too. I really love working with you. Well, you know, just thinking about some of the things that we've just learned about one another. I was wondering, as a white American, do you have any personal experience with white supremacy or white privilege that you would like to share? Yeah, I think um, I just kind of referenced in how I came to reparation generation about my father's decline and, and his passing um, and what he called his legacy. And I think my father represented for many what has been defined as the American story, the Horatio Alger story. A young mother uh, brings a child into this world in the depression, in the heart of the depression. And then his father died when he was only 13 months old. And my grandmother was so poor, she ended up having to place my father and his sister in an orphanage. Mind you, as I said, I'm Jewish and my father grows up experiencing a world of otherness uh, back in the 30s being, you know, there's anti-Semitism as there is today and continues to be, but there was much more uh, embedded in our culture. But that he, um, through his hard work, is able to grow up through poverty, goes to college, works his way through high school and college, basically working from a very young age, ends up. Uh, graduating from college with a degree in pharmacy at the age of 20, he's still too young to get a license because you have to be 21, um, ends up serving in the military, and then he leaves the military um, as a captain, and he gets all these privileges as a captain, which allows him to go back and do graduate work. It allows him to get loans uh, for college. It allows him to get loans for his home. And this all goes into creating this story for my father about how we grew up rags. And at the end, he, you know, was a successful pharmacist. And in passing, he developed a, you know, a small little estate, um, you know, where as the oldest child, I'm the executor and I have the responsibility and, and honor to help settle my mom and dad's estate. because My mom preceded him in death. And um, I started thinking about all of this. And then as I'm doing my writing and reading, and especially reading about black history and racial injustice, I'm reading about the denial of GI bills to black Americans and the denial of VHA loan guarantees to black Americans. And I'm reading about redlining that occurred in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I'm reading about the planned community, which I grew up in, in Marin County, which is right across from San Francisco, where my parents bought a house. And that house that they paid with a VH loan, you know, originally for, 
I don't know, $8,000 they sold for, you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars. And then they leveraged that and bought another house that they sold for over a million dollars. And I'm thinking this estate that I'm settling for sure, my father earned it, but I'm realizing and, and you know, realizing after reading things like Ta-Nehisi Coates's uh, article in the Atlantic on reparations or, or reading other writing about, you know, just the, the systemic racism and the institutions that support what has been denied. And then I start thinking about the lies that I've been told about Black Americans, you know, not working hard and they could achieve if they were and I just realized I bought into that. And so there's lots of stuff that came up for me in that process as a white American that I've been struggling with about the privilege I've had, about what I was taught about our supremacy and, and what I was taught about our exceptionalism, especially as a Jewish American, because we, you know, we are a minority, but you know what? I, I get to pass as white, as did my father. And so um, I think that was a personal experience of, of recognition of my truth that um, it's been hard, especially as I listen and watch other people living in that the lie as white Americans. But I feel honored to be able to see that now and, and work to tell my truth and hopefully others will see theirs. So, I was curious, Kiko, as a, a woman and a Black American, is there anything you would want to say to a, a white American that about difficult memory or a situation as it relates to race and injustice and inequality for, that you experienced? Definitely. But first, let me just say that I really enjoyed hearing about your experience growing up and all the different perspectives. And I know that you know, we are only the direct result of what our parents and what our environment teaches us. So um, having the experience that you went through and then you're sharing it with me sheds new light on what your experience is. And so I think by doing this, um, it allows us to gain an understanding for each other and our backgrounds, which will ultimately bring an understanding and an acceptance that there's not so much different in our experiences. You know, I feel like unity is about getting to a better place. And the best way to do that is to find understanding and commonality among ourselves. Mm -hmm. And our country is built on being a country of unity. But I feel, you know, America is dragging and kicking and screaming towards its founding promise that all men are created equal Mm -hmm. along with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so I think of so many different stories of my personal family history of dealing with uh, racism and injustice and inequality. I mean, there's so many that I can think of, but I'm going to tell you about one that is probably the most dramatic, um, that History goes back many, many, many years before I was even born or, or thought about. But to make this a little bit more personal, I'm going to tell you a story about when I was five years old. Uh, my family used to go down south. Uh, as you know, I live up north in Michigan. So my family would uh, make routine vacation trips to Mississippi, 
which is where half of my family is originally from. As you know, the Great Migration, where a lot of um, African Americans moved from the South up north in the search of you know a better life and jobs and opportunity. So of course, that family that would move up north, they would routinely go back uh, for summer vacations to the South to visit the rest of their family. And we were just like many others. And so when I was five years old, we would get in a car and we'd pack up and we drove from Michigan to Mississippi. It's about a 16 hour car ride. And it was this particular trip, it was my grandparents on my father's side, myself and my older brother. And we had taken this trip, you know, many years before, before I could even remember. But this one I remember very clearly. You know, as you know, when you're five years old, your memory and uh, sense of family and sense of self is really kicking into high gear. So I was a very inquisitive child, very talkative and very aware of my surroundings. So I love being down south with my family. Um, But my father's family was a very well-established family in the area. My great-grandfather owned lots of land, so much land that he had a hotel, he had a restaurant, there was a hardware store, there was a general store that sold all sorts of things you could get there. He also had a home that was up on the hill and it was a river that ran along the side of the property. So it was a very prominent piece of land. And he also had a very large property that extended just for miles. And we had lots of other family that lived um, on the land as well. So when I was there, that was my first time that I remember seeing all these different businesses and seeing how prominent my grandfather was. And he was very proud of me and he took me around town and At that time, you know, the town, there was a lot of family in there. So a lot of people that we run into um, that he would introduce me to were actually family. Every place I went, you know, everyone knew him and we had a great time. I just remember my grandfather taking me to all the the stores that he owned and I was able to get anything I wanted because he told me I could, you know, candy, ice cream. I was just living the life, you know, just enjoying spending time with my great grandfather and all the accolades that he put upon me and all the gifts and things like that. So we were there for a few weeks and the time came for us to go back up north. Um, My mom, you know, she let us stay for a couple of weeks. But then my grandfather uh, had to drive back to Michigan to, to bring my brother and I back to Detroit. My grandmother wanted to stay and visit with her parents. So we had been at my grandfather's uh, parents and she also had parents there. So we drove my grandmother to her family and then we had it back up to Michigan. So it, it takes about 16 hours, but that is normally when you have two drivers. So my grandmother wasn't with us. So my grandfather was doing all the driving. So we had to stop and spend a night at a hotel, which we did. And and I remember pulling up to my grandfather's house in Detroit and there was cars everywhere. There were people, people were crying. Uh, there was just a lot of emotion. And, and being five, I didn't really understand what was going on. We pulled into the driveway and I remember my mother grabbing me and kind of scurrying off with me into the house and people were just beside themselves with um, emotion, you know, as I said, crying and things like that. And I later learned 
that my great grandfather, who we had just come from visiting, had been killed along with his two daughters and two son-in-laws. I didn't know much about it, but eventually as I you know, learned more information, uh, supposedly, and I say supposedly because to this day, I still don't totally believe the story that I was given, but the story that was given was that my great-grandfather went and shot his two daughters and his son-in-law. The, the two, one daughter ran the hotel, one ran the restaurant, the son-in-law ran the general store, and the other son-in-law, you know, was the overseer of the property. And so the story was told us that he got mad and there was a family dispute. And so he shot all four of them and he turned a gun on himself. And so that is the story that was given. And needless to say, after all of that, you know, the investigation and things, they determined that he uh, committed suicide. And in the process of that happening, the police and uh, sheriff of the town uh, took possession of all my great-grandfather's property and said that the property belonged to them. And because, you know, at that time there was a lot of uh, racism that was going on and the family in the South was very incapable of defending against that type of authority. And the family that was up North were reluctant or I would be, believe somewhat afraid for the family that would be left down there to endure the you know, racism or the threats that potentially cause them harm. So the family decided to let it go. Um, and the other family members that wanted to do something about it, they were told by the family that lived down South, it, it would be best for them and for their safety if they were to just leave it alone and just move forward with their lives. And so being five years old, that like uh, tremendously and horrifically just changed my view on life and racial equality. I was a little too young to understand the seriousness of racial equality at the time, but I knew from then on that there was something very wrong with uh, racial discrimination and injustice. And so even to this day, my family that lives South, they will not talk about it. And the family that lives North will speak very little about it. And so that has been something that has affected me throughout my entire life and something that has not set well with me. Oh my God. So oh my God. I hope that, you know, one day we get to a place where stories like these do not continue to happen. And yeah, that's pretty dramatic, but that's one of the many stories of our family. And unfortunately, it is not an uncommon story for many Black Americans. Oh my, Kiko, I, I can't even imagine. I can't imagine that five-year-old little girl coming after having experienced what you just explained to me as being this moment of walking on clouds with your, your great grandfather and, and walking in pride and, and, and getting home to Detroit. And I just can't imagine what that little girl felt like. I, 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 
thank you for sharing that story. It's so powerful. And then the whole idea that the state stole his legacy. Yes. I mean, over and over again, I've read that. And for me to hear a person I know tell that story, that was, I'm so sorry for your family and, and for you. It's, and thank you for sharing that. Oh, yeah. It's, you know, like I said, it's unfortunate that it has permeated, you know, our history and our existence. And, you know, the thing about it is that we were doing, when I say we, specifically my family was doing very well financially. And essentially, by having that, you know, my great grandfather, you know, taken away, his legacy taken away, and that financial stability taken away, my family had to start all over again. Mm. And, mm. you know, my grandfather and my father, they were working, struggling, and they were able to survive, but they were in a much better position, the business sense and the financial stability that our family had prior to that would have continued and not have to start over. It was just devastating to my great grandfather's legacy and to our entire family. Yeah, such tragedy. I'm sorry. That's all I can say is I'm sorry. And, and thank you for honoring your family's history by sharing it and saying it out loud for, at least for me to hear, because I'm sure that was hard. Yeah, but it's, it's actually kind of therapeutic because I haven't really shared that story with anyone much outside of the family um, because it has been so, you know, dramatic and just somewhat of a taboo. And, you know, to be able to tell that story, I think it's powerful because when you tell your story, it gives people the power to be able to tell their own story. So I feel like sharing that will help encourage others to know that this is something that has happened to many of us, but it has not stopped us from pushing forward and, you know, pursuing life and liberty and, and happiness. Mm -hmm. Agreed. So David, uh, you and I have both, you know, shared some of our experiences and our thoughts about reparations. Um, in what ways do you hope or do you see that reconciliation and reparations may actually change things? Well, first, I feel that reconciliation, it centers on the idea of truth-telling and revisiting what has been taught as our history and retelling history in a much more complete way, both from voices of Black Americans and Native Americans and people that have been othered for so long, that we need to tell these truths. And for that matter, we need to look back many centuries to colonial powers and, and what they did both in America and other countries and start looking at how over the generations we've been living with these beliefs and these false narratives of white supremacy and white exceptionalism. And that by telling these stories and, and looking at these beliefs that we can start to acknowledge how those have harmed all of us. Um, and how the process of telling those untruths or partial truths um, has created this division, um, which has often been described as racism, but it's just this division of othering where there's those who are smarter, more powerful, that are at the top of the caste system, and there are those who are othered and put at the bottom of the caste system. And in our country, the bottom of the caste system has always been Black Americans. 
And um, I believe strongly in this, and this is partly my own spiritual religious teaching of tikkun olam, that the idea of healing the world and healing ourselves has to start with acknowledging and seeing the truth. And then through that process of telling the truth, we can then repair. And the idea of reparation to me is really nothing more than after telling the truth to offer an opportunity to amend and, and mend um, a wound by making a reparation to repair that healing. And, and reparation is generally money and, and we've seen it happen in other countries and even within our own country. When we know we've done wrong and we want to retell the truth, we saw that with the Japanese internment. And so I'm hoping that through telling truths, we can then acknowledge the pain and the suffering that's been inflicted and that we will make a reparation to repair. And I also believe, Kiko, frankly, that because the history is so long in this country of harm that's been done, white Americans can make the offering of repair and they can work to tell the truth, but it may not happen right away that black Americans will accept the repair. But in time, I do, I really believe that in time the repair will be made and we can actually renew our country um, to, to, as you said, to become that more perfect union, uh, fulfilling some of the promises that were made in the founding of this country. So that's what I hope will happen. And, and uh, that's what I'm working to make happen as part of Reparation Generation. And I mean, I too, uh, my hope is that reparations can help close that racial economic disparities that exist, you know, in America between black and white. Um, I feel that we're in a moment of racial reckoning and we see the experience and a disparity between white and black Americans magnified. But it's my hope that we can help move towards closing that gap. I know that there's lots of evidence out there. The U.S. Um, Federal Reserve Board, they had a, a 2016 study which showed the average worth of a typical white family is about 171000 while the average net worth of a typical Black family is just a measly 17000 I mean, the difference of that between Black and whites is like 10 times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and racism has made it nearly impossible for Black Americans to create wealth. So that disparity is just so huge. But I'm optimistic that folks like you and I and organizations such as Reparation Generation, that we can work and actively start a movement, continue a movement that will propel us forward into building bridges that will connect us together in solidarity and you know, rectify some of the history of that racism, even though it's horrific and it's long, I'm just optimistic that reparations is part of the solution to how we get to that more perfect union. I can't stress that enough. You know, a lot of times people look at problems and when they're so, you know, huge or so, I guess, in their minds, impossible to overcome, they throw their hands in the air. But the time for throwing the hands in the air is over. We have to put our minds into action and pull together to come up with solutions and come up with strategies because we're capable of doing it. And I believe, I'm again, optimistic. I believe that more people are in the position or in the current 
state of mind that now is the time to do what's right. Doing what's right is best for everyone. And it's not your problem, my problem. It is a problem for us all to face together and to overcome together. I I totally agree. And I, I think your belief about we are at a moment in time and I think you highlighted we're in this moment of time of, of racial reckoning, but we're also in this moment of time of people wanting to bridge and, and heal. I also think it's an interesting time because we're now at this moment where baby boomers, of which I'm one of them, have inherited some wealth from our families or are in the process of inheriting wealth from our families. And we also are at this point where baby boomers are starting to pass. And in fact, I read a statistic that over the next 20 years, which is really a generation, that 30 to $40 trillion will be passed from our generation to our children's generation. And of that, the vast majority of it is in the hands of white Americans. And so in some ways, the idea of reparation generation and and this idea of reconciliation is we white Americans need to reconcile how we came to get this money, much of it through inheritance and legacy, and some of it ill-gotten by stealing, as you shared your story, and and that instead of passing it on to the next generation, maybe we need to transfer that wealth as reparation to those from whom we've taken that wealth, right? Either through exploitation of, of their labor or from stealing their property and I just think that what your story was so powerful, but also the hope that you still have, and and I too, about telling the truth and and this moment, as you said, I I do believe we are a generation, and in this next generation, I think we can do this. Absolutely. We definitely can do this. We have to do it. I think it's something that this country needs and this country desires to be, Mm -hmm. and and we, we definitely, it's a doable it's very, it, you get it. <laughs> yeah, I get, it. I get it. So, so my, so my last thought and, and curious what you would say is years from now for future generations of your family who might be listening to our conversation tonight, is there anything about this moment in time or uh, about what we're doing that you would want to pass on to them? Absolutely. And it reminds me of some words Uh, that Brian Stevenson that I thought were just would be appropriate. I would say stay hopeful because hopelessness is the enemy of justice. And hope allows us to push forward even when the truth is distorted by the people in power. Hope allows us to stand up when they tell us to sit down. It allows us to speak when they tell us to be quiet. I believe truth is the ultimate equalizer of justice. So I would tell them to stand in the truth of our history and never stop speaking up or telling our stories and be a necessary and positive influence on the continuation of our story in American history. Be present and be counted and speak their truth and mm-hmm. never stop speaking that truth. Mm-hmm. Well, what about you? Is there? Do you feel like there's something you want to say to you know, future generations or your family about racial justice or something that you would like to pass on to them that they would need to know? Well, I think, you know, I get emotional because. Um, <clears throat> well, it's an emotional. Yeah. 
topic. It is. It's an emotional topic because for me, and as much as I loved my father and I shared with you his story and, and the legacy he left us, and I don't want to take away from uh, the success that he achieved based on his hard work. I just, I feel like I've learned so much. And in part, I've learned it because of my children. You know, there was a moment, Kiko, when I sat at the dinner table after my daughter came back from a BLM march and she looked at me, you know, for all my progressive liberal talkings, she looked at me and it's kind of like, you know, dad, what the hell are you going to do? <laughs> and so when I look at this, you know, your question about future, you know, in, in the years from now, I just want to be able to say I did something. And I feel like we're doing something big for sure. But I just remember that kind of embarrassment. And I am hopeful that this march that we've started, this movement that we've started in truth telling and in, in reconciliation of our past that, that I will be able to look at many other white Americans and say, you know what? We did something and we worked together in unity, reaching hand in hand with black Americans. And I feel like I am befriending black Americans in ways that I, I didn't allow myself to before because I othered them. And that um, to tell my children and their children, you know, that, that we're not a race of black people or Asian people or Native American people, we're a human race. Yes. And that doesn't mean I don't see you as a beautiful black woman, but I truly believe that until we see each other as, you know, loving people that we cannot heal. And so, you know, that's what I'm hoping for. I don't know if that made sense, but. Um, no, it, it makes total sense. And I appreciate because without this, this struggle, this journey, this movement, it takes everyone working together from all sides. And yeah. unless we have truth telling, reconciliation, we, we just simply can't get there. And I think it's so important that we took the time to share our stories. And although yeah. we're getting to know each other, you know, on a deeper level and finding a deeper understanding and commonality between everyone and ourselves. Yeah. So I truly appreciate you taking the time to, to share that information and to share your story. Yeah, I totally loved hearing your stories and appreciated you being vulnerable and telling your truths and also sharing your vision and uh, wisdom and uh, your, your infectious belief that we are going to do this. We will. Yeah, we will. We're the reparation generation, Kiko, you and I. Yes. <laughs>